Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. GC, what's happened since our last show? Many things, Zach. The justices, who have now all been fully vaccinated, held their first in-person conference since the beginning of the pandemic. Some justices still attended remotely, but the court says this latest development is in keeping with updated public health guidance. That's good news. Good news yes, for sure. Yes, indeed. The court also announced that it will continue hearing cases telephonically through April, and we'll see what happens after that. Great. Well, there were several orders this week, several grants. Uh, the first was United States v. Zarnayev. Uh, and if you remember, this is the case involving the convicted Boston Marathon bomber Zokar Zarnayev. Uh, and, and as a background on the case, a federal jury in Massachusetts convicted him of 30 counts related to the bombings that killed three people and injured 264 others. The trial court ultimately sentenced him to life imprisonment on multiple counts and to death on six of those counts. However, when the First Circuit Court of Appeals uh, reviewed the case, it vacated his capital sentences and remanded the case for a new penalty phase of the proceedings. So now the Supreme Court is being asked to decide two questions. One, whether the First Circuit erred when it determined that Zarnayev's sentence must be vacated on the ground that the trial court, during its 21-day voir dire, let me say sorry, that again. What? Let me say it again, GC. During its 21-day voir dire. Good Lord. Which, you know, that's the process where the judge and the lawyers ask questions of the jurors to, to determine their suitability to serve on the jury. Uh, but basically— the Supreme Court's being asked to decide whether it was error for the trial court during this three-week <laughs> process not to have asked each prospective juror for specific accounting of the pretrial media coverage that he or she had read, heard, or seen about the case. And then the second question the court's being asked to decide is whether the trial court committed reversible error during the penalty phase of the proceedings by excluding evidence that Zarnayev's older brother, Tamerlan, who is also involved in the bombing, but who was killed in a police shootout, was allegedly involved in different crimes two years before the offense for which Zarnayev was convicted. Uh, this will certainly be an interesting case to watch. And again, uh, you know, 21 days for jury selection. I, I, I don't envy the lawyers or judge involved in that process. No kidding. The court also took up the case called Servotronics versus Rolls-Royce. The court will decide in that case whether a district court's power to compel a person located in its district to provide evidence in support of what the relevant statute calls a foreign tribunal applies to foreign private arbitrations. What happened at oral arguments this week, GC? Well, we had three. Uh, we had Cedar Point Nursery versus Hadid was the first. That case is going to decide whether a California law that permits union organizers to enter the property of ag businesses, agricultural businesses, uh, to talk to employees amounts to an unconstitutional taking in violation of the Fifth Amendment. Now, on the one hand, you had California arguing that the law is just a minor regulation that limits when organizers can enter property and how many can do so. 
But on the other hand, you had Cedar Point Nursery arguing that it has effectively been denied one of the sticks in the bundle of sticks that is property, the right to exclude. I'm having flashbacks to my first year property class, GC, <laughs> with the bundle of sticks. <laughs> I know. You never, you never escape that metaphor. So oral arguments revealed three potential ways that the court could go. It could hold that the law is a taking for which compensation is owed or it's unlawful, unconstitutional. Or it could hold that the regulation was not a taking. But both options leave the court with a very uncomfortable line-drawing exercise that the justices hit both sides with. For example, would the regulation be acceptable if it permitted organizers to enter property 200 days a year? Would it still be a taking if it permitted entry for only one hour one day per year? Justices Kavanaugh and Sotomayor, however, hinted at another approach. In a case called Babcock from the 1950s, 1956 specifically, the court held that the right to exclude must yield to union organizers when the employees cannot be reached except by union organizers entering the property. For instance, the employees live on it. If the court followed that approach, it would have to craft a new and updated balancing test which, you know, isn't great. I, for one, to the extent any justices are listening, don't like them. So please respect <laughs> that opinion as you make your decision. But uh, that might be uh, an easier consensus approach. It's definitely a very interesting case. And I think was the Pacific Legal Foundation representing uh, Cedar Point Nursery in that case? That's correct. Excellent. Well, next up, we had United States versus Cooley. Uh, the court heard arguments in this case on Tuesday, and it involved the question of whether a tribal police officer has the authority to temporarily detain and search a non-Indian on a public right-of-way within a reservation based on a potential violation of state or federal law. Like many true crime stories, this one starts in the early morning hours along a deserted stretch of Western Highway. So here's what happened. Around 1 a.m. on a Saturday morning in 2016, a Crow tribal police officer noticed a vehicle stopped on the side of the road. Since vehicles often broke down on this remote stretch of highway where the drivers might have difficulty calling for assistance, the officer stopped to investigate. During the course of talking with Mr. Cooley, the officer noticed that he appeared to be a non-Indian, uh, which is important for jurisdictional reasons, but the officer continued asking him questions. The officer noticed that Cooley appeared impaired and that there were firearms inside of the vehicle. Because Cooley started acting in a way that concerned the officer, the officer ordered Cooley and Cooley's son, who was with him, out of the truck. During the course of securing the truck, the tribal police officer found a glass pipe and a plastic bag of methamphetamine, as well as some additional baggies that are commonly used when someone sells drugs. Based on these findings, federal authorities prosecuted Cooley for drug and gun-related crimes. But Cooley moved to suppress the evidence on the ground that the tribal officer acted outside of his authority in conducting the search since tribal officers are not authorized to arrest non-Indians. Hold on, because this gets messy fast. Indian tribal governments are generally not subject to the requirements of the Fourth Amendment, but Congress has passed a statute called the Indian Civil Rights Act, which provides that a tribal government cannot conduct unreasonable searches and seizures. The government conceded below that the exclusionary rule should also be available under this analog to the Fourth Amendment. 
But at oral arguments, Justice Sotomayor pushed Cooley's counsel on why, setting aside the government's concession below, the Fourth Amendment's exclusionary rule should apply to tribal governments. Justice Gorsuch also asked tough questions about where to draw the line with regards to the authority of the tribe and tribal authorities. He said he would have approached this, quote, thinking that tribal sovereignty remains until and unless Congress has withdrawn it in some fashion, and that the relevant question here is, what does the Major Crimes Act have to do with Indian sovereignty? He said that 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 act precludes tribes from trying certain individuals for crimes, but he asked if and how he could or should specify where the act would, quote, kick in to reduce tribal sovereignty. Justice Gorsuch also raised a point that I've previously raised when discussing Indian country jurisdiction, that tribal officers aren't subject to either Section 1983 or Bivens actions when functioning solely in their tribal capacities. The tribes themselves are also generally entitled to sovereign immunity. Cooley's counsel said that unless the exclusionary rule applies to circumstances like this, there would effectively be no remedy for illegal conduct by tribal officers. Uh, you know, GC, this is just the latest in a long line of messy cases involving tribal jurisdiction, tribal sovereignty. And after Justice Gorsuch's McGirt opinion last term, uh, it'll certainly be interesting to see uh, what happens with the Cooley case. No kidding. Well, last up, we had Canelia versus Strom, which uh, I always want to pronounce Caligula versus Storm because that sounds cool, <laughs> but it's not. So last up, this case concerns the so-called community caretaking exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement, and it's going to decide whether that exception applies to the home. The community caretaking exception allows police to undertake a warrantless search or seizure if they're exercising so-called caretaking functions unrelated to criminal investigation. In 1973, in a case called Katie, the case that created the exception, the court permitted the warrantless search of a car that was conducted incident to towing the car after it was involved in an accident. Now, in this case, police entered Mr. Cornelia's home after his wife called them and asked them to perform a wellness check on him. Once inside, they seized his guns, believing that he might be a danger to himself or others. He subsequently sued the police, but the trial court invoked the community caretaking doctrine and granted the defendant's summary judgment motion, and that was upheld on appeal. Cornelia here is now arguing that the community caretaking exception has never been applied to the home and should not be expanded into that context. Homes and cars are simply different. Now, the Biden administration filed a brief on the side of the police, but was opposed by a broad left-right coalition, including the American Conservative Union, the Cato Institute, and the ACLU. The justices discussed the extremes of both sides. For example, if the caretaking exception never applies to the home, then police might not enter without a warrant to, say, help an elderly person who has fallen. But on the other side, the caretaking exception can be very broadly interpreted and, as in this case, resulted in a man losing his firearms when he was not an imminent danger to anyone. So there were also hypotheticals. So many hypotheticals. <laughs> and let me guess, uh, did Justice Breyer offer any oh, of those hypotheticals? <laughs> yes, we're not going to get into that. Suffice it to say, he asked about whether there were uh, spaceships at the common law and what, to, what the common law would have done with them. 
But I, putting that aside, read the transcript. It's fun. <laughs> uh, I think the justices seemed very skeptical of extending the caretaking exception to the home, at least wholesale. But the argument was noteworthy for a different reason. Towards the end of oral argument, the chief permitted all the justices to ask questions willy-nilly in that free-for-all approach of the in-person arguments uh, of ages past. It was a little chaotic. I think maybe missing the visual cues that one of your colleagues is about to ask a question contributed to that. But it was nostalgic to see that happen again. Well, I'll tell you what, GC, spaceships and willy-nilly free-for-all questioning, uh, that sounds like an exciting argument. (laughs) (laughs) Well, next up, that brings us to the opinions uh, that the court released this week. First up is Torres v. Madrid, uh, which is another Fourth Amendment case. It was an opinion authored by Chief Justice Roberts, and he was joined by Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Kavanaugh. In this opinion, uh, the court held that a seizure for Fourth Amendment purposes occurs when an officer shoots someone who then temporarily eludes capture after the shooting. The court said that the, quote, application of physical force to the body of a person with intent to restrain is a seizure, even if the force does not succeed in subduing the person. In this case, the officers fired their service weapons to stop uh, Miss Torres, and they struck her twice in the back, temporarily paralyzing her left arm. Still, she ultimately escaped and wasn't arrested until the following day while at the hospital retrieving treatment. Miss Torres later sued the two officers who shot her under Section 1983 for depriving her of her rights while they were acting under color of state law, and specifically, she claimed that the officers had applied excessive force so that the shooting was an unreasonable seizure under the Fourth Amendment. The district court granted summary judgment to the officers, and the Tenth Circuit affirmed on the basis that in order for a seizure to occur, there must be some physical touch or show of authority, and that such physical touch or application of force must terminate the suspect's movement. The Supreme Court, however, disagreed, finding that, quote, the mere touch rule existed at common law so that a mere touch, even if unsuccessful, would have resulted in a seizure. It said the same was true for application of force via a gunshot at a distance. Now, Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justices Thomas and Alito, dissented. He said that the court's holding that a criminal suspect can be simultaneously seized and roaming at large is as mistaken as it is novel. He went on to say that until the day a Fourth Amendment seizure has required taking possession of someone or something, and that to reach its contrary judgment, the majority must conflate a seizure with its attempt and confuse an arrest with a battery. He said that neither the Constitution nor common sense could sustain the court's ruling. Justice Barrett took no part in this decision. We also got an opinion in Ford Motor Company. In an 8-0 opinion by Kagan, again, Justice Barrett was out, the court held that when a company, quote-unquote, serves a market for a product in a state and the product causes injury in that state, the company can be hauled into that state's courts under what's called specific jurisdiction because it has reached into the state to avail itself of the market. In this case, you had two Ford cars that were involved in accidents in states where Ford sells, advertises, and services cars, but does not design or manufacture them. Ford moved to dismiss claims against it arising from the accidents on the grounds that personal jurisdiction was lacking because there was no causal link between its connection to the state and the injury that was alleged. 
Here, Ford said that there was no causal link because it didn't design or manufacture the cars there. It only advertised or serviced the cars there, and that's not enough for specific jurisdiction. But the court rejected the argument, holding that, and I quote, we have never framed the specific jurisdiction inquiry as requiring proof of causation. Continuing on, it is sufficient that Ford, quote, extensively promoted, sold, and serviced the vehicles in the states where the accidents occurred. Now, it was unanimous uh, as to the ultimate holding, but you had a few concurrences. Justice Alito said, we don't need to reinvent our personal jurisdiction doctrines to get to this uh, result. A straightforward application of the seminal case International Shoe gets us there. And then you had a really interesting opinion by Gorsuch, uh, joined by Thomas, where he said, the court is actually doing something very new here, although it pretends it's not. And I can't say that it's wrong. But it's getting very clear that the line that we drew in international shoe between general jurisdiction and specific jurisdiction is very blurred. This case only makes it worse. And he solicited lower courts and scholars and advocates to help the court in considering whether it should rethink that case. I'll tell you, GC, this week really has been uh, a retread of my 1L classes. We've got a Civ Pro case talking about international shoe, <laughs> the Cedar Point <laughs> case talking about a bundle of property rights, and then we have all of the Fourth Amendment cases. Uh, so it's really, you know, it's almost like I'm back in uh, 1L in law school again. <laughs> well, this week for our interview, we're joined by a former Supreme Court clerk and longtime advocate, John Wood. We are joined today by John Wood, Chief Legal Officer and General Counsel of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Over the course of his distinguished career, he has been in private practice and all three branches of federal government, including a clerkship for Justice Clarence Thomas. Mr. Wood, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Giancarlo. I'm pleased to be here. So we're going to talk about your remarkable legal career, but first things first, would you like to address the rumors that you are a diehard Kansas City Chiefs and Royals fan? Ah, yes. Well, I, in terms of football, I'm very much a Kansas City Chiefs fan. I'm from Missouri and have lived in both St. Louis and Kansas City. And so with uh, the Chiefs nowadays being the only Missouri NFL team, I'm very much a Chiefs fan. And in fact, uh, a little over a year ago, my wife and son and I went to the Super Bowl in Miami and got to see the Chiefs win. Uh, in terms of baseball, all uh, the Royals are my American League team and the Cardinals are my National League team. Well, on to legal matters. What uh, what made you decide to pursue a career in law? Well, I've always been interested in government and how government works. And so uh, a legal career was an opportunity for me to work both in the private sector and in government and work on a lot of the kind of uh, interesting issues that I've always enjoyed, particularly involving how government works. So after you graduated college, but before you started law school, you served as a legislative correspondent uh, to the legendary Senator John Danforth of Missouri, who, among other things, gave Justice Thomas his first job out of law school in the Attorney General's Office of Missouri and was instrumental in pushing his nomination to the Supreme Court. What was it like working for Senator Danforth? It was a tremendous honor to work for Senator Danforth. I really view him as the model public servant. He always put the country ahead of his own interests. That's something that was rare then and unfortunately seems to be even rarer now. Uh, as you may know, he was not only a politician, but also a lawyer and an Episcopal priest. 
And I think that made him grounded in a belief in something larger than himself. And that's part of what was uh, making him look out for the broader interests of the country rather than just his own self-interests. And you mentioned that he uh, hired Justice Thomas into the state attorney general's office, but in that office, he also hired John Ashcroft, who went on to be governor, senator, and U.S. attorney general, and Kit Bond, who served as governor and senator. And so uh, Senator Danforth really helped build the modern Republican Party. You, after law school, went on to clerk first for uh, Judge Michael Ludig, very famous feeder judge, uh, because so many of his clerks went on to the Supreme Court. Can you tell me about uh, what it was like clerking for him? Yeah, it was a great experience. I learned so much. I think I learned more in that one year than I did in all three years of law school and really learned how to write. So one of the things that Judge Ludig would do is he, and this was unusual at the time, I don't know if other judges do this now, but Judge Ludig had a table in his office with three computer monitors, but no keyboard. And so uh, he would have, if it's a smaller opinion, he would have the clerk who drafted the opinion come sit in his office while Judge Ludig would, using his own keyboard, go through and edit the brief. And he would pause and ask, why did you cite this case? Or what do you mean by that sentence? And when the clerk would explain, well, here's what I mean by that sentence, he would say, well, why didn't you write it that way? And then he would rewrite it with the clerk sitting there. But what made it even more uh, intimidating is that if it was on an important opinion, he would bring in all three of the clerks and he would grill the clerk who wrote the opinion in front of the other two. And so it was uh, more terrifying than the Socratic method in law school. Trial by fire. No kidding. Do you have any um, particularly special memories of Judge Ludig? Well, we spent a lot of time together because at the time, the uh, federal courthouse in Alexandria, Virginia was full, and so there was no room for his chambers there. So he had chambers in an office building in McLean, and so uh, we were really isolated from uh, other judges and other clerks, and so we would go to lunch every day, and then when the court was sitting uh, in Richmond one week a month, we would have all three meals a day. And uh, you always had to be ready to discuss the cases during uh, a meal, because while we would certainly have friendly conversation, he also focused very much on the cases and would be asking us questions throughout the meal. Like so many of Judge Ludig's clerks, you went on to the Supreme Court and clerked for Justice Thomas. What was that experience like? Oh, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, Justice Thomas is very personable and takes a lot of interest in his clerks and their families. Uh, and so he also would bring all the clerks together for meetings that could last several hours before the cases were argued. He would have one clerk assigned to write a bench memo and make a recommendation, but he would have all the clerks uh, review the bench memo and sit down together and really argue out uh, their views in front of the justice. And the justice was very engaged and very inquisitive, would ask a lot of questions and really get to know the case inside and out. And so that's part of why he doesn't ask many questions from the bench, because he really believes that it's important to prepare ahead of time and answer as many questions as he can based upon the briefs and the, the cases and the record and give the oral advocates a chance to really make their arguments during oral argument rather than simply listening to the other justices talk. Do you have a favorite memory of your time working for Justice Thomas? 
One of my favorite memories is uh, Justice Thomas would get in very early in the morning, well before any of the clerks or the staff. Uh, but then sometime uh, a little after eight o'clock, he would go get another cup of coffee and he would stop in uh, to my office, which was just a couple doors down from his within the chambers. And uh, I shared the office with somebody who tended to come in a little bit later. And so it would often just be me uh, there and the justice would sit down and maybe ask about how an opinion was going that I was helping on, but often would just uh, talk about football or baseball or ask about my parents and things like that. And uh, I really enjoyed that. But he he often would come in and say, where's your colleague? Referring to my uh, office mate who wasn't in yet. And I would always say, oh, I think she was there really, really late. That's why she's not in yet. And then finally, at the end of uh, the term, Justice Thomas told me he really enjoyed watching me try to cover for my co-clerk and watching me <laughs> squirm. Did Justice Thomas have any traditions with his law clerks? One of the traditions that I really enjoy is once a month when the court is in session, he will have a lunch with his former clerks. And any of the clerks that are in the D.C. area or just happen to be in town can join him. And it's a really great way to get to know, uh, not only to stay in touch with Justice Thomas, but to get to know his uh, growing family of former clerks. Besides uh, Senator Danforth, Judge Ludig, Justice Thomas, who have some of your other mentors been? Well, I, I worked for President George W. Bush, which was a tremendous honor. And during that time, I got to work for a lot of really impressive people. Uh, John Ashcroft, who was the Attorney General, Mitch Daniels, who was the head of the White House Office of Management and Budget and went on to become governor of Indiana, and then Michael Chertoff, who was a former federal court judge and served as Secretary of Homeland Security. And so I was really honored to work for such impressive people. After your clerkships before government, you uh, started your practice at Kirkland and Ellis. How was your time there? I really enjoyed it. Uh, I went there because I wanted to get a mix of appellate litigation and trial level litigation. And Kirkland and Ellis allowed me an opportunity to do both of those. And I also got to work with many really impressive attorneys, uh, including uh, former judge and Solicitor General Ken Starr. After Kirkland, uh, you, that's, you went uh, into the federal government. You served in a variety of positions, including uh, Deputy Associate Attorney General, Deputy General Counsel at the Office of Management and Budget, Counselor to the Attorney General, Chief of Staff uh, to Homeland Security Secretary, like you mentioned, Mike Turtoff, uh, and U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Missouri. Can you walk us through uh, these positions? Tell us some of the most interesting things you worked on in them. Sure. Uh, I really got to work on a broad array of cases and policy issues. So when I was Deputy Associate Attorney General at the Justice Department, uh, I focused on uh, helping the then Acting Associate Attorney General oversee the five uh, civil litigating divisions at the Justice Department. So it was the Civil Division, the Environment and Natural Resources Division, the Tax Division, uh, the uh, Civil Rights Division and the Antitrust Division. And so got to really see at a high level the, the most important and significant uh, cases that the Justice Department had across the country. Uh, and then I went to work at OMB where I worked on a lot of regulatory issues because uh, all the major regulations go through the Office of Management and Budget. 
Uh, and then I went back to the Justice Department. I was asked to come back and work in Attorney General Ashcroft's office, and I had that same portfolio that I had when I was in the Associate Attorney General's office, so working with the civil litigating divisions. Uh, then I went to the uh, Department of Homeland Security and uh, was Secretary Chertoff's first chief of staff there. And that was a significant change for my career because I was not in uh, a lawyer position then. Uh, and so I got to learn a lot about management, a lot of challenges. The Department of Homeland Security was still pretty new there and working out uh, processes. And one of the things Secretary Chertoff led was what was called a second stage review, which was an effort to look at how the uh, department, which had only been around for a couple of years, was functioning and ways to take it to the next level and improve it. And that involved significant reorganization of the department uh, and a lot of uh, new developments. Uh, and then finally, I became U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Missouri, which was really a, a dream job for me and uh, got to deal with a broad array of criminal and civil cases. Possibly the most interesting one that I worked on was a corporate fraud case uh, involving a company called the American Italian Pasta Company, and they made dry pasta and had made projections uh, on earnings that they publicized to Wall Street and investors. And then along came the Atkins diet and people stopped buying as much pasta. And so it became hard for them to meet their aggressive earning projections. And then they engaged in inappropriate and illegal um, accounting tactics in order to try to meet their targets. So it was a fascinating investigation working with the attorneys in the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, and the SEC ultimately resulted in the former CEO and former CFO pleading guilty and the company entering into a non-prosecution agreement in which they paid a large fine. So you transitioned into the chief of staff role. And then you transitioned out. Uh, tell me a little bit about that transition, given that it was so different from what you had been doing before. Yeah, it was a big change going to Homeland Security because I was no longer acting as an attorney. But I'd had some management experience uh, at the Justice Department and at the White House. And so that helped prepare me for it. But it definitely was a, a new world for me having more of a management uh, and support role rather than being an attorney. Uh, and I enjoyed it, but wanted to get back to being a lawyer and uh, being U.S. attorney gave me an opportunity to get back into the law, but also, you know, run an organization on a day-to-day -day basis. After you were U.S. attorney, you uh, went back into private practice at Hughes, Hubbard & Reed. What kind of matters did you work on uh, there? I worked on a combination of uh, litigation and uh, internal investigations and compliance matters, uh, mostly representing large companies, but uh, a few cases in which I represented individuals. And so it was a good mix. So I had a lot of really interesting cases and uh, investigations as well. And one of the things I enjoyed the most is representing companies and individuals in their dealings with the government. Was that a natural transition then into the Chamber of Commerce? Uh, it's a bit of a change going from a law firm to in-house, uh, but I think that my government experience really prepared me well for my position as general counsel at the Chamber of Commerce. So I deal a lot with uh, not only litigation, but also uh, policy issues. What made you decide to go uh, from litigation into in-house? 
I'd always thought I wanted to be a, a general counsel somewhere, and uh, the Chamber of Commerce was a fascinating opportunity because it uh, has such a big role in the policy world uh, and also litigation. So the Chamber of Commerce uh, has a litigation center, which I oversee, that litigates in support of business interests in courts all over the country, including the U.S. Supreme Court. We do both party litigation, where the chamber is challenging a government regulation that uh, we think is illegal and imposes a burden on the business community. And we also have an amicus program, which is where we're not a party in the case, but we think that the business community has an interest in the outcome of the case and the precedent it might set. So we weigh in as a friend of the court with the views of the business community. So in addition to being general counsel, like you said, you also head the litigation center. You're also the chief legal officer. It certainly sounds like you have your hands full. So what is your day-to-day -day like? Yeah, I really split my time uh, between two main functions. One is overseeing the litigation center, which I just described, and the other is overseeing the general counsel's office, which provides legal advice to people within the Chamber of Commerce and helps make sure that we're fully complying with the law, uh, which is something that uh, is always challenging in a highly regulated environment. Your wife, Julie Myers-Wood, has also had a remarkable career of her own. She was part of Ken Starr's independent counsel team, uh, chief of staff to Mike Chertoff when he was head of the criminal division at DOJ. She was an assistant secretary for export enforcement and commerce, a special assistant to President Bush, uh, and head of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, and now CEO of Guidepost Solutions. How do the two of you manage to balance it all? Well, my wife is really an amazing person. I'm just so proud of her. Uh, she has a very important job as CEO of Guidepost Solutions, but at the same time keeps our family running. And she does an amazing job with both. And I'm just so blessed to have her in my life. Well, Mr. Wood, I want to thank you for joining us today and ask you one final question. If you could have any conversation with a Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, I would probably choose uh, Justice Thomas and talk about football, because that's something I really enjoyed doing when I was clerking. But I'll offer another answer, which is uh, I'd be interested in talking to uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, who, as you know, had such an instrumental role in shaping the government we have today. And I'd want to ask him what he thinks about the modern administrative state that has evolved, because he surely could not have imagined the regulatory and administrative state that would have been built up and how much control really is in the hands of unelected regulators rather than the Congress. And I'd be interested in whether he ever could have envisioned such a change and what he thinks about it. Well, Mr. Wood, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, GC, since the court heard arguments in a couple of Fourth Amendment cases this week, I thought we could do a little Fourth Amendment trivia and talk specifically about the development of the exclusionary rule. You ready? Okay, this sounds like hard, substantive trivia, Zach. I'm used to softball questions <laughs> about you know what the justices had for breakfast. Well, listen, you know you can always plead the fifth, but uh, you know one, one, one amendment <laughs> off. Uh, <laughs> well, that was that was a good joke, Zach. <laughs> for the record, that was uh, that was spontaneous. Uh, well, I don't often tell good jokes, so I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take what I can get. <laughs> 
But listen, why don't we start with the exclusionary rule, which of course is the rule that evidence obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment can't then be used against a defendant at trial. So here's the question, GC. Which case uh, did the court use to establish the exclusionary rule? I think if I remember my uh, early law school correctly, that was Weeks versus U.S. I'm impressed. That's exactly right. Uh, This was a 1914 case where the court said that any evidence illegally obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment by federal agents could not be used against that defendant in federal criminal proceedings. Now, obviously, today, the exclusionary rule applies to both federal and state officers. So here's your next question. In which case did the court incorporate the exclusionary rule and apply it against state officials, too? I think that was MAP versus Ohio. Whew, you're killing it today, GC. <laughs> two for two. Uh, that's exactly right. You know, MAP versus Ohio is a 1961 case with crazy facts. The Cleveland police were searching for a man at Dolly Mapp's apartment who was involved in illegal gambling, and they wanted to question this gentleman about a bombing of an alleged rival racketeer's house that happened a few days beforehand. And that rival racketeer... Any guesses who that was, GC? No. It was actually Don King, uh, the famous boxing promoter. Uh, Of course, this was before he uh, had really gotten into boxing promotion or had become uh, as famous as he is today. Uh, But that's kind of an interesting historical tidbit. Uh, So what happened in Mapp versus Ohio, the police entered uh, Dolly Mapp's home where they found, among other items, pornographic materials. Uh, She was ultimately prosecuted for possessing those, and the Ohio Supreme Court upheld her conviction under the then-existing case law. Uh, But, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned it and incorporated the exclusionary rule against state officials as well. Now, interestingly, Mapp versus Ohio overturned an earlier case where the Supreme Court had declined to incorporate the exclusionary rule against the states. Uh, Do you have any idea what that earlier case was, GC? Hmm. No, I don't. Well, that was a tough one. It was Wolf versus Colorado, and that was a 1949 case, uh, again, where the court had previously declined uh, to incorporate the exclusionary rule against the states. But of course, they, they changed course with Matt versus Ohio. All right, here's the final question. Which law professor has long been critical of the exclusionary rule as not having a textual basis in the Constitution and has even said that, quote, the Warren Court's biggest mistakes involved the exclusionary rule itself? Oh, you know, I know this because sitting on my desk right next to me right now is uh, that that person's book, America's Constitution. That's Akhil Amar. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Professor Amar has written extensively on the issue, and he even authored an essay for SCOTUS blog that he called, quote, the despicable and dispensable exclusionary rule. Uh, You did great at trivia today, GC. Uh, You're definitely, uh, if you're not a Fourth Amendment expert, you're pretty close to it, (laughs) I think. (laughs) I'm I'm Uh, not. I just had a really great criminal procedure professor. 
Well, you're impressed with trivia today. And so that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. As always, please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star review. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.